They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 104 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises Caucus PAC. I'm Liam McCollum, and I'm your host for today, and my guest is Germinal Van. I've I've known Germinal for some time now, and I think the last time I, I interviewed him was three years ago on my own podcast, and um, I have the privilege to speak with him again today. Uh, he, he immigrated to the United States in 2010 from the Ivory Coast. He's an extremely prolific writer, very accomplished, and he, he's written nearly two dozen books at this point, I think, and at a very young age. Um, he's also an award-winning economist. Uh, it's it's really a privilege to be talking to you again. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me on your platform. Yeah, so how many, how many books are you at now? I'm actually, okay, so normally it's 25, but um, physically it is 26 because the, my latest book, A, a History of Wealth Distribution, it's a two-volume book, so you know, book twenty-five and book twenty-six. But since it's on the same subject, normally it should be book twenty-five. Okay, okay. Well, so for the audience who doesn't, anyone in the audience who doesn't know you, um, I've I've had the privilege to talk to you a few times, and you have an awesome story. Um, why don't you just introduce yourself, give a little bit about your background, and uh, what attracted you to the United States and economics? Sure. So, um, in fact, it was a big progress. I always knew that I would come to the United States at some point in my life. Uh, since age 10, I always told my mom that one day I will be coming to the U.S. and live here. And uh, once I got my high school diploma, I came straight here to go to school. I came with a student visa. I went to, uh, so I attended the, the Catholic University of America, studied political science and a minor in philosophy and French literature. And then I graduated, so I graduated in 2014. I took a year off. Then I went on to do my master's in political management at the George Washington University uh, in DC as well. And uh, I studied political management there and I graduated in 2017. So political management is basically the uh, the practical aspect of politics. So it's for people who wanted to become like campaign managers, like uh, chief of staff of politicians. So it's basically professionals in the world of politics. And um, so, yeah, so I did that. I applied to job for jobs anywhere. It was really hard. And uh, and then I started getting interested to go to law school. And 
because I was like, I, I wanted to become a politician in the US. So, and I realized that the conventional path in America to become a politician is to get your bachelor's, then get your law degree. Usually you either go to corporate law, you become like a district attorney, then you run for the legislature and other political offices. So that was the path I wanted to take. I took the LSAT three times, <laughs> it was hard. The language barrier was a real issue, specifically when it comes to, uh, you have to answer on the outside, you have to answer like what, 35, uh, no, you have to answer 25 questions in 35 minutes. And it's written in a quite tricky language. So it's, it's, it's hard like to think, translating your native language and come back and it was hard, but I still managed to get into two law schools. But uh, the situation, the economic situation even wasn't right to go at the time. So I ended up not going and I started writing. And my first book was basically on political science on American government. And as I started writing, I think I got into economics after my fourth book. And that's when I started being accustomed to uh, economy. In fact, the way I got into economics was because I became more accustomed to libertarianism, which is interesting, because libertarianism is basically the uh, the political philosophy that is very economics driven. When you look like when you look at Democrats or Republicans, sure they have the economic views, but it's not centered on on that. Compared to libertarians, every libertarian know pretty much about economics, especially free market economics. So that was the logical follow up. So I started reading about libertarianism. Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell. I always knew about Hayek. In fact, Hayek was the one that got me into political philosophy. Uh, in school, I got I read um, The Road to Serfdom, and it made me like a pretty a pretty conservative guy because I agree with pretty much everything Hayek said. And then so I started so when I started reading uh, Friedman, Thomas Sowell, and Ludwig von Mises, and all these guys, so I started getting more into technical economics. And, uh, and then my books became more technical on the field of economics. And, uh, and that's when I start training myself in, in, in mathematical economics and econometrics. And then I eventually even got a job as an economist for a, uh, for a software company. Then I work also for a, uh, for a, for a logistic uh, supply chain company as an economist. And after that, I was uh, kind of like, tired of working for people. I always knew that I want to have my own business. So, and then I started getting to finance as well. And then I started my company. So now I own two, um, two companies. Uh, one is a uh, publishing company. And the second is the Lake Street Review, which is the newspaper, which is the online newspaper that I started, um, I would say two months ago, pretty much. Now, when I, uh, last interviewed you, I, I believe it was about your book um, about the Nobel Prize in Africa. You had, you had kind of uh, developed this idea of introducing a Nobel Prize equivalent within the country of Africa to spur um, innovation and economic thinking. And yeah. uh, the Ivory Coast, as I understand it, is, is fairly uh, classically liberal. And that I that environment um, attracted you to the ideas of 
uh, economics is that is that right? I'm I'm trying to remember what we talked about. In- yeah. So um, no. So the the way. So what you said is is pretty accurate. Um, Ivory Coast is one of the countries that has always been economically uh, liberal. That is why we have like pretty much we are like the most uh, advanced uh, African country among all the French speaking countries in Africa. And uh, but what got me really to work on this book was that I look at the Nobel Prize and all the people who won uh, the prize. And I realized that there was not that many Africans. And the reason why is not, of course, about no, because they're racist or no, it's not that. It's just that there are other factors. In order to win the Nobel Prize, there's certain factors that need to be in place. And one of those factors is to be one, a professor in a country like the United States or Canada, or even in Western Europe, maybe Japan to some extent. So you have to be in one of those areas. Otherwise, if you're like an economist in Montevideo in Uruguay, no. Even if you develop the best economic theory that that is worth of a Nobel Prize, you're not gonna be acknowledged. So you have to be in certain countries and you need to be a professor in certain schools. So you see that there is a pattern. And based on those patterns, you realize that, I realized that there were like Africans will not really get a shot. When you look at Africans, they only won the Nobel Prize for literature and peace. Uh, you never really saw, like when I say Africa, I mean black Africans because there's white South Africans who won the Nobel Prize for medicine. Yes, they're African administratively. Uh, But when it comes to Black Africans, none of them won the Nobel Prize in science. So, and it's, and I realized that it's something that kind of bothered me, but at the same time, as I said, like they're not in the right, uh, the the factors necessary for them to be considered for the Nobel Prize are not there. So I was like, if you're not in the United States or in Canada and Western Europe, you can write all the papers you want. You can develop all the best theories you want. It, it won't matter. So at this point, I was like, why not creating our own Nobel Prize then? Our, our equivalent, which will uh, put forth, you know, African intellectuals. So that's when Jean-Philippe and I, we had the idea. And then I talked to him about the idea and he was hooked. And he was like, let's do it. So, and then like, you know, we, uh, we use a very... Um, data-driven approach to to write the book and make sure that it, is, it was compelling. And then and then you also have a book on uh, classical liberalism within <laughs> Africa. And um, I think that's the first book I ever interviewed you about. Yeah. Um, for, for the audience, uh, may, maybe people aren't very familiar with African politics. Uh, what What is, um, I mean, I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear that, that the Ivory Coast has embraced capitalism. I think there there might be a stereotype um, about African politics. So what is the general landscape? How would you describe Africa as a whole? And then um, how would you describe the Ivory Coast? Okay, so that's actually a great question. Um, everything's, so in order to understand African politics, you need to understand colonialism and independence because that these are the two major uh, phenomena that shaped African politics and African economics. So 
many African countries in the post-independence era, so in the 1960s and beyond, went down the socialist route. And that was because of the influence of Lenin. Lenin wrote a book on imperialism. And for Lenin, imperialism is basically the last stage of capitalism. So it's capitalism at an international scale. And he was saying that, so that's when he developed basically what we call the dependence theory, saying that rich countries are rich because they are exploiting the, the, the resources of poor countries. And it's from that notion. So Africans saw uh, capitalism with imperialism. So they were like, if we embrace capitalism, therefore we are embracing the oppressor because colonialism is imperialism. But what people don't understand is that colonialism is not capitalism. Colonialism is mercantilism, right? Because mercantilism is based on the, the, the it's an economic system in which the wealth of a nation is determined by the quantity of raw materials, precious metals, and other commodities, right? And, and since those are finite, therefore a country needs to go conquer other territories to get those resources. And that's why you have slavery and colonialism. People didn't want to enslave people for it because it's fun. <laughs> Maybe they did enjoy why they were doing it, but initially it was to increase the wealth of the country. So that's why you see colonialism like Canada or even the US in the early uh, 1600s, right? That's when colonialism happened in, in, in the United States. But that was because mercantilism at the time was the dominant economic system. And even though, even when you look at the map of Africa, right, the, 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 the two major European powers that colonized uh, Africa are France and Great Britain. France colonized specifically West Africa because they lost the war against Germany in 1870. So they were completely ruined. They need to rebuild the economy. And one of the ways to do that was to go and colonize Africa in order to get the resources. So you see again the, mer the mercantilist mentality here. So mercantilism, so slavery is compatible with mercantilism, not with capitalism. But Lenin missed that part completely. But since people read Lenin, and to them, capitalism and uh, imperialism is basically capitalism on a uh, global scale, we cannot adopt that uh, that economic system because doing so is to to support what the oppressor did to us. So that's why many African countries went down the path of socialism. So they went down the path of socialism for political reasons rather than economic reasons, because anyone who understands economics will go the route of capitalism. And that's what Avricos did. So our first president was one of the very few to embrace capitalism. He did not believe in redistribution. He did not believe in collectivizing resources. He believed that uh, the wealth of a country is based on the amount of goods and services that people produce. And the goods and services are produced through voluntary exchange. We need to have property rights. But one common thing that all African countries had was that they were politically authoritarian because, between, because of the Cold War, between the 1960s and 1990, 
they all had a one-party state. There was no multi-party politics there. Every country had a one-party state. And but economically, that's when they were different. And Ivory Coast made the right choice by embracing capitalism. And in 1970, we had what we call the Ivorian miracle. That's when the economy was at its peak. And uh, the living standard of Ivorians was, was much higher than most, than most uh, West Africans. And many West Africans were coming to Ivory Coast to study, to live the same way, you know, Africans come to Europe for a better life. It was the same literally the same and that tells you and shows you again the power of capitalism when you let people freely uh pursue their self-interest they end up contributing to the greater good adam smith talked about it in the wealth of the nation he was not lying about that phrase yeah well that i i really appreciate that uh how does i guess modern politics how how does the current state of politics in Africa as a whole um, play into uh, I guess international politics that we're seeing today? Because you you recently wrote an article on the IMF and their relationship to African countries, um, and there's been a lot of talk recently about mm-hmm. the United States, uh, you know, through their foreign policy and their monetary policy. Uh, they're they've kind of isolated themselves in a sense uh, yeah. and that uh, they might be more attracted to countries like China. And there's this Belt and Road Initiative where um, it's kind of being sold as China is uh, offering them these predator- predatory loans yeah. um, in competition with the United States. But then there's also this joke that uh, when the United States tries to influence um, countries, they they get a rant and um, they get uh, dick. They're basically um, criticized for their cultural values, whereas China doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, it's it's merely economics. Yeah. Uh, whereas the United States is very concerned about women's rights or <laughs> whatever uh, woke agenda on on the global stage. So, uh, is that analysis correct? Because that's that's kind of my very superficial understanding of um, geopolitics and international politics right now. How, how would you say Africa is in, in its relationship with the United States and trade? Okay. First of all, your analysis is correct because uh, as I explained in that, uh, in the article, I think yeah, there's an article I posted where I say that uh, Africans should not see Russians and Chinese as the ally. And, uh, and I, distinguish the the two sort of colonization. So Western uh, Western colonization focus on political colonization. Political colonization is coercive because what you're trying to do is to to completely change the person's identity. That's what the Western colonization was about, like specifically the French. Like they try to completely transform you into someone new. Like they make you speak the language, their language, uh, you have to abide by their laws. Basically, everything they do, you have to do that. So that's what the United States was trying to do, and Africans are not supportive of that. They they try to impose, you know, woke culture and LGBT stuff on Af- Africans. Like we are not part of that. Why don't you do that with the Saudis, right? Why don't you try to do that with the Middle East? You don't, <laughs> but you're trying to do that with us because you know you have leverage over us. So, but the Chinese don't bother with those stuff. 
And that's why Africans are turning more toward China, although they're aware that Chinese don't necessarily love them or don't have the best interests at heart. But at least the Chinese don't bother, don't bother them with culture. The, the Chinese are not trying to impose their culture to reshape the African man. It's a new form of colonization. It's economic colonization. The Chinese are very determined. They're here to do business with you. And one thing that is I, I notice is that people don't read contracts. Uh, when you get into business with someone, contracts are long, it's tedious, so people just go to the bottom of the page and they sign. <laughs> but within the contract, that's where everything is elaborate. And if you don't take the time to read it, it can have serious consequences when you know when you're on the losing party, and that's what has happened with Uganda. Uh, the Ugandan government took a loan with a Chinese bank to uh, for a uh, infrastructure project, specific. I think it was to renovate their airport, and the Ugandan government could not pay back the loan, but it was stipulated in the contract that. We're going to use your airport as collateral. If you fail to pay back the loan, this airport is going to be ours. And this is what happened. And the Africans complain, oh, the Chinese, the racist, they look at the colonizing us. Like, no, they had a contract with you. <laughs> you did not read the contract. You signed and you failed to pay back your loan. And now your own airport is in the hand of the Chinese. So, so you see here that the Chinese did not use force at all. They did not come with weapons and you know the military force and take over. No, they say, hey, we have a contract. We're waiting patiently. And they wait. The Ugandan government defaulted on the on their loan. And now they own the airport. So and it is the same, so it is the same concept that, that is going on with the IMFs. Like a lot of African countries are taking loans to fund their projects. And a lot of them default on the loan. And because they default on the loan, that has economic consequences. Uh, it basically affects, number one, the reputation of the country. So when it, when you come to the international bond market, people, don't want, people do not want to loan you money because you're a bad debtor. You're not going to pay back the loan. So creditors are, are fearful of you. Uh, it reduces economic growth because... Now, people who are producing the goods and services, everything they're producing is to pay back the loan rather. So basically to come back to zero, right? Instead of adding value to the economy, which will lead to positive, uh, which will lead to, which will bring positive output. So basically everything they're producing is to cover up a, a, a negative balance because a lot of, because African governments spend a lot. So they get into budget deficits. And it's uh, it's the people who are paying the consequences of those deficits. So, but for the IMF, this also and the IMF knows that when they knows that there is a strong chance that the government, like whoever, whatever government is asking for the loan, will default on that loan. But they still give the loan to the government. Why? Because it's political leverage. Because when they give the loan, they don't just give the loan. They give the loan with certain conditions. They say, okay. We're giving you this loan with 
our conditioning, our terms and condition. And one of the terms is condition that we want you to apply this and that policy. That that's what happened with the uh, structural adjustment program in the 1980s, the late 1980s, because there was a massive recession. I think it was a global recession, and it hit African countries pretty severely. So what they so in order to get out of the recession, first, many African countries did the, the Keynesian approach. You know, they used debt to, re, to revitalize the economy. And then the IMF, when the IMF loaned them that money, they say what we want you to what we want you guys to do is to liberalize uh, some industries. So that worked for some countries, but it didn't work for others. But this is to say, this is to show that the IMF does, doesn't just give you the money. It gives you the money with terms and conditions. Like the terms and conditions is not just about, it's not just you paying back the loan, but because it's institutions and government, therefore there are political uh, motives being, being played there. So the IMF wants to make sure that many African countries implement some of their agendas. Some African countries are not, you know, do not want to, but when you go and you default on the loan, now you have no choice, <laughs> your hands are tied. So, yeah, so that's what happens. Yeah, so I think the the United States, um, and, and especially the ones who are more hawkish towards China, they're, they're characterizing these loans as predatory. Um, would you still say that they are predatory if, if they know that um, the government is likely to default? And, and would you say the same about the IMF loans are, are oh yeah both, absolutely so absolutely. they're both yeah. colonial and predatory yeah no absolutely it is there they are predatory because they they already know the they already know that they have leverage over those countries so you know that you're getting in business with someone who is not at the same level as you you have complete superiority over that person so knowing that you're just trying to take advantage of the person. And this is what happens also because African political leaders as well, one of the issues is that they are not patriotic enough. And that's why the Chinese have an advantage because the Chinese are making deals with African governments, not even with, uh, private African companies, you know, we have African government. So the, the African leaders are the one basically selling some resources that should be, you know, that should be collectivized because I believe that some resources should be collectivized, but my stance on, on, collect, on collectivization, I'm against it, but when it comes to certain sectors, I understand why they're nationalized and why they should be. But they basically, sell those to the Chinese and now the Chinese own those things. So now you see China owning resources in a land that is not theirs. So will Africa be developed? Absolutely. They will be, Africa will be economically developed. But the question is by who? Is Africa going, going to be developed by Africans? Or is Africa going to be developed by the United States? Or by the Chinese? So far, it looks like the Chinese are the one. And one thing that the Chinese are extremely good at is, is that instead of them imposing their culture on you, they're the one who embrace your culture. 
think about this. They come to your country. They embrace your culture, make you think that they love your culture. So now you see Africans, ah, you know, with their hands all happy, they think that the Chinese love them. No, they don't love you. They're here to take your resources and leave. They're not here to, 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 to play with you. But now one of the ways to for them to um, uh, to 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 basically dupe Africans is by pretending that they care about African culture. So therefore, Africans be, become less uh, less wary of Chinese intentions, and the Chinese take advantage of that. So do you um, do you believe that? the United States is a dollar is in decline and that um, on, on the global stage, China and, and this new BRICS system will serve as a serious competitor, knowing that uh, Africa is kind of embracing China because they're selling it this way. I, you know, I, I think that the United States is pretty short sighted. Um, the, they've spent the last 20 years using military might and sanctions regimes and um, exporting infl inflation abroad that um, and then also trying to enforce their values on these countries that uh, uh, African countries are now looking for an alternative, one that is is more acceptable. And and to to an extent, like libertarians are, are very open to the idea of like trade and and what China is doing superficially appears right until you realize that yeah. they're predatory loans. Um, yeah. But but we could serve as a real competitor by abandoning the foreign policy and the monetary policy we've we've been pursuing and and just opening up markets and and pursuing free trade. I I wonder I wonder what you think about um, just the 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 future of the dollar and and whether it really is uh, um, being threatened by the Chinese and the Russians. Sure. So at the end of the day, one thing that is important to understand about money is that the money, the value of money, specifically fiat money, is uh, the value of money or fiat money is based on faith, on the belief that this thing has value. Compared to gold, we know that gold has value. You know, we don't have to dispute that at all. That's why the gold standard has been uh, the monetary system for a very long time. But now that we have paper, the only way for us to believe that that paper we're using has value is because the government issuing that paper claims that that thing has value. So now when, he, when we look at the global market, at the end of the day, the US dollar is in a weak position. Now I don't know if the US dollar will completely collapse because in order for the US dollar to be complete, to completely collapse and be completely relevant, one thing has to happen. Wall Street has to collapse. So long as Wall Street remains the dominant financial system in the world, the dollar will still remain relevant. Sure, some African countries may embrace, you know, the BRICS alternative to the US dollar. But some people, I don't know, they prefer using the dollar to do to to, to trade. That's what it is. It's that's what it's, it's all about faith. Like we are all used to the U.S. dollar. Let me um, tell you this. This is an anecdote. 
I used to live in Nairobi, Kenya. So that's why I actually learned English. And during vacation, I went to the French school there. And during vacations, I used to go see my dad who was living in Tanzania, the country, the neighboring country south, south of Kenya. So my sister and I, we will always take the bus to go from Kenya to Tanzania. And we have to stop at the border and pay for the visa to go. But the payment of that visa fee is not in Kenyan shillings. It is not in Tanzanian shillings. It is in the US dollar. What that tell you, it tells you, Kenya and Tanzania speak the same language. They both speak Swahili. They pretty much have the same values. That's why we even, that's why the idea of creating like a United State of Eastern Africa was, became pretty uh, relevant because Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, they, or they have the same cultural values. And yet, going from Kenya to Tanzania, I still use the dollar to pay for that visa fee. So that what that tells you, it tells you that the US dollar is the, the currency that we trust for international exchange. That's what people feel more comfortable with. Even two countries that speak the same language would rather use the dollar. Even when the Zimbabwean currency completely declined and became worthless, the currency that replaced the Zimbabwean dollar was what? It was the dollar. Even in Argentina, in Argentina, inflation is so high that if you want to buy a house, you have to buy it in US dollars. Why not in Brazilian real or in Chinese yuan? Why the dollar? Because the dollar is the currency that at the end of the day, we trust because we trust the American financial institutions to preserve the transparency and the strength of the US dollar, even though the US dollar is currently weakening. But at the end of the day, we believe that so long as the, 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 the global financial system, which is supported by the United States, is still functioning, the dollar will be around. That's the bottom line. Because as I said, the dollar is, is fiat. Fiat is based on faith. Because the US government say, hey, we decree that this is money. And, and we have, and it is backed by the full faith and transparency of the US government. So you have to believe us. And people, that's what the dollar is here. Are you, are you concerned at all about, um uh saudi's new or the saudi arabia's new uh peace deal that was mediated by china um with iran do you think that that at all is uh weakening the the petrodollar um given that we gave them military guarantees and uh they've they've priced oil in the dollar um now that seems to be that whole institution seems to be collapsing um and if you know demand for the dollar globally decreases, whether it completely goes away, um, those dollars will still, I think, flood back to the US and there, there is risk of uh, significant inflation as a result. Um, do you have the, the same concerns? Uh, to some extent, yeah, but everything depends on uh, for how long things will keep going that way. Because right now what Xi Jinping is trying to do is to try to rally pretty much the eastern side of the world to his cause. And at the end of the day, the Saudis are looking out for their own interest. 
hear, yeah, the news say, oh, yeah, we, we are done pleasing the United States. But this is all garbage. They're not done. If the U.S. come with a better deal, they're going to come with the U.S. So it's all it's all politics. It's all in my in my opinion. I could be wrong, but I think it's all theater. Yes, for now, like China is presenting a better deal for Saudi Arabia, but it, it it's not to to the point where Saudi Arabia will completely abandon its entire relationship structure with the United States. I don't think it will go that far. Yeah, and I think the Ukraine war is kind of. Um affirming what you're saying because it appears that a lot of these countries what what they're doing is they're they're kind of taking a neutral position and they're waiting it out to see who ends up being the the bigger force um and that's why africa hasn't really uh they haven't complied with the us's vision yeah. in ukraine um and we're actually seeing a lot of that in in europe and the middle east as well some of our allies uh uh, supposed allies uh, like Israel, um, you know, in, in those recent leaks that that we um, that were released two weeks ago, we mm -hmm. found out that that Israel was saying that they would only give aid to Ukraine if the United States guaranteed that they would give aid for direct attacks to Iran. So I, I think it, it, it's affirming what you're saying that um, a lot of the countries are are actually just holding out to see what yeah. uh, what happens um, now. You, you did talk a little bit about money and in inflation here, and um, that, that actually makes me want to uh, segue and, and pivot to a different conversation. Sure. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about your uh, economic theory and, and your economic philosophy. Uh, it, it, do you consider yourself an Austrian or would you – I know you had some – pretty big critiques of it when we originally talked about um, yeah. about it. And you definitely have more of an affinity for econometrics and, and math and mm -hmm. economics. Um, so how would you identify yourself uh, economically and, and politically? Sure. So politically, I am a classical liberal. I consider more myself a classical liberal, a conservative than an actual libertarian. And economically, I consider myself more of a uh, part of the Chicago School or the Virginia School of Economics, basically the guys of public choice, or more than an Austrian. That doesn't mean I'm not an Austrian at all. As a matter of fact, I started as an Austrian. I think Austrian economics is great to start learning the fundamentals of economics. It's good. Austrians are great at that. If you have completely zero understanding of economics, using the uh, learning economics through the Austrian school is the best path to to go with. But as now you start getting, once your knowledge of economics is is pretty much proficient, and you want to start getting into deeper, more technical economics, that's where, in my opinion, Austrian economics becomes short-sighted. And one of the reasons why I think I, 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 uh, I think that is because I have an issue with the fact that Murray Rothbard brought libertarian thinking into economic analysis. I generally have a problem with that. That's why if you know that I never post about Rothbard on my on my post. I love Mrs. I love Hayek. 
Ludwig, uh, uh, von, uh, Ludwig von Bavirk, uh Karl Menger. When they did economics, they actually did economic analysis. It wasn't based on a sort of political ideology. When Menger basically started the Austrian school, he started with an observation. And it's that observation that created mar the marginal revolution, right? The marginal uh, uh, theory of, of, of utility. He saw that when people use the same item, the same commodity, over and over, the level of satisfaction decrease. This is an observation, and it's from that observation he formulated a theory. So you see here that he started with the inductive method, right? You start with an observation, the, the data, the data doesn't have to be quantitative necessarily. The data is just an observation. You start with the data, you start with an observation, and based on that observation, you start, you derive a theory, a generalization to explain something. Now my problem with Mises was praxeology. That's my major issue with him, not his theory itself. I agree with most of Mises' theories, but I don't. I never thought that praxeology was the right method of economic analysis because the purpose of developing a theory is to be able to predict what, like to be able to predict what could happen. Because if, for example, I ask you how the Chinese Exclusive Act uh, impacted the U.S. economy in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, if you use praxeology to tell me that you, the answer you would give me would be very vague. But if you use quantitative tools, then your, ex, your answer would be more precise. So what praxeology does is that praxeology is good to create a theoretical framework, right? So a, 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 a theoretical apparatus to, and then, but that's where it stops. After you create your theoretical apparatus, that theory that you created needs to be tested to see the validity of it. Because it's not because something is theoretically true that it is empirically true. So especially in economics, I think it is important that whatever theory we develop is tested. And that's where like my, that's my major disagreement with Mises. Besides that, I always agree. I love Ludwig von Mises. He's a, he was a tenacious economist, a true classical liberal, and, uh, but he was stubborn on his praxeology. And I was like, no. But uh, but my my major disagreement with the Austrian school as a whole was with Rothbard when he brought libertarianism in, into economic analysis, which now turned the whole Austrian uh, school into some sort of like ideological cultish thing. And I don't think that's a good look for the Austrian school because the Austrian school brings a lot of value. When you look at business, the business cycle, this is extremely important. And the Austrian brought a lot of value to economics with the business cycle. The business cycle, for example, it's here. This is pure economic analysis. Whether you agree with it or not, it is pure economic analysis. There was no libertarian thinking there. That's why the Austrian school is respected uh, when it comes to business cycles. It's true that many schools today do not, uh, 
do not know what the Austrian school is. And I think Austrian economics should be taught, uh, especially Austrian thinking should be taught in schools because they bring a lot of value to economics. But I, it's important for people to separate libertarianism and ethics with economic analysis and with free market economic analysis. So I'm, I'm wondering about your, a little more about your critiques of praxeology. So is your issue that it begins with like the, what is uh, typically called a synthetic a priori observation of, of human action and that then they, um, it's a deductive method from that principle. Do you, do you disagree that um, economics starts with that observation that humans act? No, not the fact that humans act. Of course, we all act. But the question is, we act toward what? Because the fact that humans act is very is very broad. Animals act too. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we all act. But we act toward what? Is toward a specific goal that we are able now to determine how to get there. And I think that's where praxeology does not emphasize on. Yes, human beings act because they're rational, uh, they're, they're, they're rational uh, species, but it's not enough to understand because we need to understand people's goals. And it's based on their goals that we're able to determine not just the, the path or the patterns to get there, but also the outcome. Of course, don't get me wrong, like quantitative economics is, has a lot of shortcomings too. But because, for example, if you, let's say, Liam, you use praxeology to predict about um, the minimum wage. I can simply contradict you and say, well, yes, the minimum wage creates unemployment, but by how much? Does it mean that everyone is unemployed right now? Because if we look at the data, for example, unemployment is right now at 3.5%. Instead of increasing, which, was, which is what the Feds are trying to do to tame inflation, unemployment still decreasing and there's still minimum wage. So how come unemployment is decreasing when there's a minimum wage? What, what would be your answer to that? So if you're using the data to come up with an answer, that would make more sense than if you're just using praxeology because there's because normally if you use praxeology to apply uh, to, uh, to the minimum wage, we're supposed to see an increase in, un, in unemployment based on the fact that you know minimum wage leads to more unemployment because you're paying people a wage that is below, that is... Uh, above market value and you know people cannot uh, employers cannot afford it but when you, we look at the evidence it's completely contrary to that so that's why i think what the austrians should do in my opinion is to combine both praxeology is good to create to determine a theory to create a theoretical framework but the austrians should should go a step further they should test their the theories because austrians have very great theories but it is abstract. It's not enough. It's all in here. When you develop a theory, the goal of developing a theory is to be able to implement it. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point of, or unless people love to do mental gymnastics. I personally don't like doing mental gymnastics. I like, I'm a very pragmatic guy. So when I develop a theory, the goal is to implement my theory. So I think it's important for Austrians to go a step further and go to toward the, um, uh, Toward the uh, the scientific aspect, basically testing the theory and implementing. And don't get me wrong, it's not all 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 um, Austrians who reject empiricism. It's just a group. It's not all Austrians. 
who reject empiricism. At least that's why, because I know that there's some Austrian economists, for example. Um, oh, I forgot, there was an Austrian economist who basically used econometrics to show uh, to, to show the um, the business cycle and the uh, and the recession of two thousand eight, I forgot his name, but he wrote a paper where he used a lot of statistical techniques to prove that. So that shows that yes, he's Austrian, but he did not limit himself just to to the praxeological approach, and that's why. And and this paper he wrote is actually used by many Austrians to vindicate the Austrian business cycle to prove that the business cycle is actually empirically valid. Yeah, well, I, I'm wondering a little bit about you, you said that uh, uh, humans are rational. And I know that like mainstream uh, economics likes to um, like w when they're solving for like utility functions and stuff like that, they, they have a certain um, kind of packed in definition of what it means to for a person to be rational. And I, I think the Austrian critique and I, I haven't studied economics. I'm, I'm a philosophy major mm -hmm. and I, I come at libertarianism first and then I discovered Austrian. So you, you might have some problems with that. <laughs> um, but my understanding is that the critique comes from praxeology where it's the understanding that humans act um, and they act towards certain ends um, that they, they have preferences and then they, um, use certain means to achieve those ends and those are all subjective um and it's demonstrated through their action and and i think that the way that rationality would be defined through that analysis is the use of means to achieve ends um and and so i guess what is your idea of uh rationality do you think that it would you say, like um, other mainstream economics or economists, that uh, certain behavior that isn't um, proved by like a utility function or something like that is irrational? Uh, I guess, how would you phrase, what's the, the language that you would use around rationality and what's the purpose of you using that term? No, when it comes to the Austrian on the concept of, of rationality, they are correct, indeed, because, and I can use my own example, right? I can write a book. I can write a 500, 600 page book, put my heart and soul in it, do all the research I want. I put that on the market and the book doesn't sell. So you see that people chose, they're not interested. This is subjective. Of course, there is sub the concept of subjectivity in economics is crucial. They're subjective. Like, they, this is a market reaction. People are not interested. Basically, there is no correlation between what the consumer wants and the amount of, the, the amount of labor that are put in it, right? So when it comes now to, um, yeah, so when it comes to rationality, it's, it's everything depends on what, people want like what is the preferences what is the preferences what is their what are the choice and values because people choose according to what they like and their values so that's why we always end up having different choices but at the same time you see that people can act in a unanimous way during certain situations 
And one of those situations are when you look at, for example, supply and demand. If you increase the price of a good or a service, what is going to happen? Most people will, st will start using, will, will start buying less of that good or service of the price you increase. This is pretty much, this is pretty much universal. So this is not like a matter of like individual choice, like each person. Sure, some people who have the means may be able to keep purchasing it, but most people won't be able to, and vice versa. If you reduce, uh, if you um, reduce basically the uh, uh, the availability of goods and service, or if you increase the availability of goods and service, then what is going to happen? More people will start pouring and buying more of that. So this choice here is, is, is rational, but it is universal. This choice here can be quantitatively demonstrated. But at the end of the day, the way people make choices in the market is that people, of course, purchase things for their own reasons. People can buy the very same thing for different reasons, but they keep buying the same thing regardless. So I think what neoclassicals and average school of thought focus on is the fact that people are buying it despite the reason of buying it. While the Austrians focus more on why are they buying. So the why is what differentiates or makes people unique in their decision to go after something. While the average school of thoughts, they're more like, well, if you remove, if you diminish this and increase this, then people will react to certain, it's kind of like a machine. Yeah. So, right. So like, as I say, like you can, if you increase the, uh, if you increase the availability of iPhones, more people will buy iPhones that you can quantitatively demonstrate it. But now why people will buy iPhones? That one you don't know. Liam may buy his iPhone because he wants to use it for GPS. Your, I don't know. Let, let, let us assume that you have a sister. Your sister will may, maybe want to buy iPhone just for the pictures. Who knows, right? So, but because you want to buy the iPhone for the GPS and your sister want to buy the iPhone for, for the pictures makes the purpose of buying the iPhone different for two different individuals. So when I was learning a little, when I was first learning Austrian economics, I, 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 lost, I watched a lot of like the Mises Institute's lectures from Mises University. And the way that I understand um, Austrian economics is that their critique of mathematics isn't, um, it, it's not properly meant to be understood to be that math has no role in mm -hmm. economics, um, but that there are certain epistemological limitations mm -hmm. to math. Um, mm -hmm. And that like when you look at um, mainstream economics and they use a lot of models, um, that is not actually how we decide things. Like w when we're at the grocery store, we're not like looking at a utility utility function. Yeah. We are, you know, often it's reflexive. It's like, well, I'm hungry. Uh, that looks good. And yeah, then I'm going to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was looking for a Mises quote um, and the way he puts it is, uh, let me find it. Um, I wanted to read this because I, I just want to see your reaction to it because it might be that you are just critical of, of a certain base of Austrian economics. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm not like fundamentally against Austrian economics at all. As I said, like I studied as an Austrian myself. Mm -hmm. I did. 
It's just that when it comes to, I think, let me put it this way. I think when it comes to policies, and maybe that's where I have my issue with the Austrian school, is that the Austrian school is not very policy-driven. And I am. Because I think that whatever economic theory we are developing is to apply to policies, right? So, and that's where like, I'm very heavy on testing theories because we want to test it to see how it's going to, to appear in the world, like how people will, will react to it and if it's worth being Im implemented as a policy. Because that's what the Austrians are more academic. The more, that's why they focus more on the abstract. While me, I'm a very pragmatic and very practical guy. Like that's why I've been insisting on the fact that Austrians should push forward because they have great theories. And I think the theories are valuable and they should be, and they deserve to be implemented. But in order to implement them, they need to be tested. Because if you don't test, how are you going to know that if it's going to work or not? So that's where my my main issue is: is like if you if you develop something, if you develop something abstract, abstract, you have to you you have to implement it. And it comes back to the philosophical discussion between rationalism and empiricism. You know, continental Europe. Now we are in your field of philosophy. Continental Europe, they're very. Uh, rational they believe in the rational in the rationalist movement you know like uh you gain knowledge just from uh from in intuition or something like that like you don't need um to you don't need experience to know something while the british the ones that i'm siding with i believe that in order to gain knowledge from something you need experience of course it's nuance. It cannot be, it's not either rational or rationalist or empiricist. It's no, because for example, uh, when you look at, I don't know, uh, let me put it this. So when you look at, for example, your skin color, you, I, I look at my skin color, I know that it's, it's, it's black. I don't need experience to see that I'm black, right? This is here, the rationalist approach. But if, for example, you want to uh uh let me find another example to uh, emphasize the empiricist approach uh if if for example you want to i don't know you want to become a lawyer you have to go to law school so how can you become a lawyer especially today how can you become a lawyer without experiencing law school right like going through mock trials uh taking uh a lot of like uh, doing those exams learning constitutional law and all of that this is an experience so uh so my approach is that in order for us to understand something and to see if it's valid or not it ought to be tested so we need to exp we need to put it to the test of experience so that we can determine with more accuracy if it's worth it or not. So that's how I approach it. So because I'm very policy oriented and the Austrians are not. So I think maybe that is my fundamental issue with the Austrian schools is the fact that they don't push beyond just the fact of developing theories. They don't go toward, you know, implementing what they're developing. They just stop at the theory. Yeah. Um, so I, I found the quote that I wanted to read. Sure. Uh, so Mises 
reacting to the idea that um, economics, you know, is epistemologically limited uh, in, in what it can predict. He says, this is not to say that future human actions are utterly unpredictable. They can, in a certain way, be anticipated to some extent, but the methods applied in such anticipations and their scope are logically and epistemologically entirely different from those applied in anticipating natural events and from their scope. So the, the argument is kind of, it, it's like, we are not machines, right? That we, uh, we, um, I like to quote the Dostoevsky uh, mm-hmm. quote um, about man is not a piano key, that, that uh, we have free will and that we aren't like the natural sciences, that we, can't, we aren't machines that we can just plot out on a graph and, and predict. Um, so the, the way that I understand uh, Austrian economics and its ability to predict um, through the deductive method, I think is best explained through um, the causal realist, the causal realist approach, the causal realist approach, and then also um, the business cycle theory. Because if if we use the deductive method from human action, uh, we we determine that humans act towards certain ends uh, using certain means. Um, from this deductive method, we also um, as it's argued, we, we discover uh, that we are limited by time. And then, you know, from that, we, we learn time preference and that uh, Austrian economics, its contribution is the element of time. It's often left, left out of mainstream economics. And then that's where we get into interest theory. And then, uh, you know, from there, we build, you know, to the theory of the business cycle. Um, do you have a critique of, of, any of that, um, w- would you say that it needs to be tested beyond the theory? Because I think, I think the Mises's idea of theory and why theory is important is that when we observe events, there's the problem of uh, correlation and causation. That you know, if if we observe a economic recession, uh, and it that recession is preceded by um, the inflation of the monetary uh, supply. And and we were to plot it out and try to predict that, um, we wouldn't necessarily be able to connect uh, the the increase of the uh, money supply with the coming recession. We wouldn't be able to say that it's it's, uh, causal. We we would say that it's correlated. And you you could empirically prove that over time but the why theory is important is because the theory then um is able to kind of bridge that gap i guess mm-hmm. um th- that's my understanding and i might get corrected in the comments but uh i wonder what you think about that is w- would you say that that math is um epistemologically limited uh and and do you agree with mises in in that respect is math uh, epistemologically limited? Yes, it is, of course. Uh, but one thing I want to uh, to emphasize here is that when Mises said, I agree with Mises when he says, we're not machines. Indeed, we're not machines. We have free will. So that's why we can sort of like not predict what humans will do. However, human being, uh, human beings will always 
repeat actions that benefits them. So if, right, you are doing something that enables you, that leads you to a positive outcome, you will keep doing the same thing until it no longer leads you to that very same outcome. So we always say we never change the winning team, right? You never, you're not going to change a habit that leads you to a positive result. So, so long as that habit enables you to uh, get what you want, you're going to still doing the same thing. And therefore, this one we can predict. Because it's also, it's all about semantics and language. How, how Mrs. put it? Overall, of course, Mrs. is right in the sense that we cannot predict what human beings will do all the time and every time. Because we're human beings, today we can decide to change up things. We have free will, like we decide. We are consequential uh, species. But when we do things, and that's why, uh, especially in business, you see companies using quantitative economics to understand human behavior, right? Like Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, that's what they do because they are using quantitative economics. Because why? Because people are doing the same thing over and over because they enjoy it. So when people enjoy something, they keep doing it. And based on the fact that they keep doing it, you can, you can predict that they will keep doing it again. So when, for example, right, um, you look at uh, Netflix, the CEO of Netflix, I remember he, he implemented like a new, like a new business, uh, a new business rule for Netflix. And for some reason, the stock price of Netflix tanked. So here people reacted differently to what he anticipated. So what he did is that he sent a survey to understand what people want. So when he sent that survey, and, and, and implementing what people want, the stock price of Netflix kept going back up and it keeps going on and on. Why? Because people love what Netflix is giving them. So that, so therefore the retention customer aspect of Netflix is constant because people enjoy, they keep watching whatever, they keep, they love the way Netflix is servicing them. Therefore they're not going to change. Therefore Netflix can predict that based on the past year or year and a half or two years, we can predict that we will still have the same number of customers because so far it looks at like what we've been doing is, 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 is working. But it is also important to understand that past performance do not guarantee future results. That's where the data is limited. The data is helpful to help us understand previous behavior. We can try to predict but it doesn't mean that the prediction will be necessarily correct either. So you see that on both hands, it's, it's still limited. Like, I don't think there is one that has the upper hand than, than, than other. So Mrs. globally is right in the sense that we're not machine, so we cannot predict human behavior at all times. But in the short term, we can predict human behavior by using mathematics or statistics, because based on past actions, that are being repeated, you can determine that, especially if that past action, if the outcome of that past action brings a positive outcome to, to the individual, the individual will keep doing the same thing until, you know, some, until like some sort of event happen and the individual decide to change course.
Yeah, I I really like what you said about uh, uh, its ability to explain past um, behavior because I think I think I've heard this in Austrian circles. I think that this is completely consistent with with the Austrian school and um, the historical method uh, and and the historical uh, approach in a, applying economics to to historical theory because. Um, I know you you might have problems with Rothbard, but in America's Great Depression, I mean, he he does this at, at many points. Um, mm-hmm. And I I think I actually have another quote here from Mises. Um, I don't know if it's related. It says, "Praxeology, the a priori science of human action, and more specifically, it's up to now best developed part economics provides in its field a consummate interpretation of past events recorded and a consummate anticipation of the effects to be expected from future actions of a definite kind. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend to be able to uh, argue with you since you've studied economics and I'm only a, a philosophy major, um, but I've, I've really enjoyed all of this. Uh, yeah. I, I guess the, the last question I wanted to ask you um, so you're you're definitely not an anarchist then you no, no yeah no. you you would identify more with uh like um Walter Williams uh Milton Friedman um yeah I, I actually I there was a, a lot that I wanted to talk about in this interview <laughs> but you're just so pro- prolific it's it's hard to, to keep up it all <laughs> into an hour I I um I wanted to talk about Walter Williams and uh, Thomas Sowell. Sure. You, you've written a few uh, books on uh, African-Americans and uh, inequality. Um, I guess maybe that'll be my last question. If if you want to kind of pitch those books and, and talk about uh, your work there, sure. um, I, I think that's really fascinating. I, I grew up, uh, I probably got into economics because of my interest in uh, Thomas Sowell and then I later found Walter Williams, who unfortunately passed just a, yeah, a couple of years ago. And he, I mean, his work on, um, he, he has the, the one argument that uh, discrimination in, in the South was uh, enforced by the government, that it wasn't capitalism that, that uh, resulted in, in discrimination. And that with these boxcar companies, this was a result of... Uh, Southern governments requiring the boxcar mm-hmm. companies to segregate. Um, and, and that was very influential on, on me and then uh, my understanding of, of free markets. Uh, so yeah, why, why don't you talk about a little bit about your, your works in that field? Sure, yeah. So um, I wrote two major books on Black American history, our social theory, I would say. Uh, the economic condition of Black America in the 20th century is perhaps my most famous book to date. And I wrote also this book, which is uh, Black Culture and Generational Poverty. So these are the two main books I wrote on Black Americans. So first, uh, the uh, economic condition. So that book basically explains the economic evolution of Black people throughout the 20th century. And what you find here in in the book is how black people actually were better off economically when they relied on market means rather than government, especially before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Because before the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1964, 
there was no welfare state, like as, at least for black people. The, the welfare state was already there, but black people could not really benefit from it until Lyndon Johnson uh, passed that policy. Uh, so black people had to rely on themselves. And you see that black people were better off economically, but they had no political rights. So what happened was that black people became more focused on political rights and they start abandoning the economic rights. So because they start be focusing on political rights, so the right to vote, the right to participate in political activities and run for office and all this stuff, uh, they start, so therefore they start to focus more on politics. And of course the Democrats, they took advantage of that to secure, as we know, the black vote. So now like black people became now more dependent on government. So they're like, oh, we can rely on the government resources to achieve certain ends. But when you look at what black people have, have achieved by using government resources, it's far less than what, than what black people achieve just by using market means. Because back in the day, since there was no government resources available to black people, there was segregation, redlining policies, so black people could not rely on anything at all. They had to rely on themselves. So they rely on entrepreneurship. They rely on localism. So you see black people starting like barbershops. They, they were focusing on trades. They, a lot of them went to vocational school. And that was in, uh, helping them out to put food on the table. So you see a black person being a plumber, he could make good money and provide for his family. But one of the feelings Lyndon Johnson did was, oh, you know, we're going to make um, college education available to everyone by giving them loans. No problem. The intention is genuine, but the consequences as we see today is completely, it, it, it's bad. Now, like college costs almost $100,000 for a four-year education just to get a, a, a $40,000 job. So <laughs> think about this. You are paying 100 k in education to work for a salary of, 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 of 40 k And before that, education was cheap because for in order for schools to have clients, customers, so students coming, they have to make sure that the price was affordable for, for people. But because you see Lyndon Johnson made that and he posed, he passed those affirmative action laws to even uh, discriminate more, it, it became harder for black people. First of all, sure, they could go to school, but they had to take loans and it was hard for, for, for some blacks to get uh, a good, decent job to pay back the loans. And on top of that, now blacks were hired on just on the premise of the skin color rather than the performance. So they were hired in position in which they cannot perform. So it became so they became a liability to the companies they were working for. So all of these, basically, you see that black people relying on government resources did not help them completely. And in the in the second one here, in um, uh, black culture and generational poverty, in this one I am basically explaining how the reason. I'm explaining basically why the reason why black people are not uh, economically, politically, and socially where they should be is because of hood culture, because they embrace certain counterproductive habits that preventing them from being uh, uh, abiding citizens uh, and to 
to and to and to produce and provide for society as well. Because you see, like, hood culture is to me personally, hood culture is very stupid. It's it's a very stupid short term culture that despise hard work, that despise uh, you know delayed gratification. Because when you look at all the minorities, you look at Indian, Indian Americans, you look at Arab Americans, you look at Asian Americans, specifically the Eastern Asians, so Japanese, Chinese, Koreans. These guys had a fair share of discrimination in the United States too. Okay, like you had the Chinese Exclusion Act. Literally, it was the first law in the United States that was explicitly racist, saying that... Uh, Asian people, specifically Chinese, are not allowed to work in key industries. So what the Chinese did, they rely on the market. They rely on the on market means once again. But you see that uh, Asians like embrace certain values, you know, that makes them today actually the, the, the wealthiest community in the United States. Asians are wealthier than, than most white people in, in, in the country. So, but Black people, like, we start embracing the culture of victimization, and we always believe that we, government is the one that is going to help us becoming, at achieving certain ends. But every time the government is trying to, quote-unquote, help us, it leads to disastrous results rather than relying on ourselves. So that's what I explained basically in the book. And then in your most recent book, um, I want to give you an opportunity to, to pitch this one, too, because it came out in January. Yeah, January. Um, so this is the second part of a history of wealth distribution in the United States. And yeah. uh, I was I was reading the synopsis of it here, and uh, it seems very interesting because in my understanding it right that uh, you are not taking inequality to be uh, necessarily a bad thing. Uh, no, it's it, not. It, it, yeah. it's, inequality is normal. It's, it's, to me, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's, you see, people, and this is where Marx and Thomas Piketty won. What they did was to correlate an economic phenomenon with an ethical, uh, I, I won't say phenomenon, but with an ethical concept. So Marx and Thomas Piketty successfully, what they successfully did was to, to, to uh, not pro, no, proof is not the right word, was to uh, make people believe that equality is a good thing and inequality is a bad thing. So today, if you ask the average American, should we redistribute wealth? He will tell you yes, because it sounds noble. It sounds morally correct. But when you ask him to give you, if you ask that average American, give me the economic reasoning why we should redistribute wealth, that person cannot. <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know. So people support the redistribution of wealth on a moral basis rather than an economic basis. And the problem is that people do not think economically. They, people do not think in terms of trade-off. So in the book, what I'm trying to do was to, to, was to basically explain the history of how the economic system of the United States developed and how um, wealth distribution evolved throughout the evolution of the country as well. 
So, of course, at first it was land. Land was has always been the most precious resource to build wealth. And you had the American gentry, you know, Thomas Jefferson, uh, George Washington, uh, all, all, the, um, all the, the, the founding fathers. If you look, if you, once you get the books, you will see that all of them were super wealthy. All these guys were super wealthy. But you see the level of inequality that was that already exists. And then Andrew Jackson became president. He brought populism into American politics. So now you see that the United States moved from an aristocratic republic to a democratic republic. Now the, the, actual, the actual class struggle was structured. Because in the democratic, in a democratic society, every aspect of society is considered a unit, a potential voter. And that's why Andrew Jackson was able to win the election, because he was able to appeal to the common man, the working class, who became in itself a voting block. So now you see that people vote based on you know, their income range, their uh sometimes their race, sometimes uh the on some social issues that concern their class, their the social class, and etc. So, the Democratic Republic enabled it enlarged the, the American electorate, but it but it also emphasized class struggle. And what you you and my favorite part of the book is basically the Gilded Age. I talk with Tom Woods about it a lot. We focus more on that than anything else. But the Gilded Age is, I think, is the most misunderstood period in American economic history. And the reason why is because we vilified the robber barons for, you know, using the exploitation theory of Marx. You know, they exploit people, they take their labor, and they enrich themselves. But what people don't understand is that, first of all, those guys took the risk to start a company. And let us not forget that in the 1800s, Electricity was not even there at the time. It didn't come until like the very late 1800s, maybe early 1900s. So everything was physical. And so that means that most uh, business industries were capital intensive. It required a lot of capital to for the operations to keep moving. If those business ventures failed, the founders of those business ventures were the ones who had to pay back those loans that were taken with the banks. The worker can, can get another job somewhere else. But that part, they don't talk about it. Don't get me wrong, the robber barons were ruthless. They did, this is some, they did some pretty shitty stuff. <laughs> I'm not going to say they didn't. I'm not going to say they were immaculate. But at the end of the day, what they did was to take the United States to a um, a completely unprecedented level of uh, economic achievement and, improve, and improvement of living standard. Because thanks, for example, to Andrew Carnegie, the United States became the, the, the most prof proficient and the best producer of steel. Thanks to Rockefeller, we had access to light through the use of kerosene. And so now people can be more productive at night so people had to go to bed like much later and be more productive. And we use even the we use even oil for other things that improve our lives. When you look at Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt facilitated transportation in the United States. Of course, all of all of them they did that for, they did that for the selfish reasons, but it improved uh, the lives of everyone, specifically the working class, who had a higher wage than the, than 
the, so the uh, the American working class had a higher wage than the than the European working class. That is interesting. I also talk about you know the his the uh, the history of the banking system in the United States. That in that book in that chapter specifically, you will see a very interesting analysis of Austrians and Chicago. Hmm. And 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 it will surprise you, but I side more of the Austrians on that. Because when you look at the time of the free banking era, we had less economic crisis than the national banking era. The Chicago schools support the national banking era, but the national banking era means what? We have more government regulating the banking system. We had more crisis compared to the, uh, to the free banking era where uh, not that there was zero crisis, they were, but they were very minimal. And the Austrians support free banking. So you see that on, on that note, aside more of the Austrians. And then I talk about um, the period the, the period between World War I and World War II. And then I talk about the Great Depression, then the Great Recession, talk about Reagan, how, you know, inequality, the so-and-so inequality under Reagan was bad, although it led to great outcomes. Talk about Bill Clinton, how Bill Clinton was not at all a, uh, a lefty. Bill Clinton was actually a right-wing guy <laughs> because there was a lot of economic inequalities under Bill Clinton, but economic output increased significantly under his, his leadership. Then I talk about the Great Recession and quantitative easing, basically all the way prior to the pandemic. So, yeah. Well, if you want to, do you want to let people know where they can find your stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's on, they can find it on my, on the website of my publishing company and they can say they can find it on Amazon as well. Great. And I'll link to all of that at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 104. Um, and, and before I let you go, I just wanted to underscore the, the point about entrepreneurs. I think that uh, it, the role or one of the major roles in society that they they uh, play is that they they forego income and sometimes they actually will uh, lose all of their income, but they guarantee wages for for workers. And that's uh, what I'm yeah. experiencing right now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like I'm telling you, it's um, and, and and you see, and that's the part that people don't understand. And people say, oh, yeah, entrepreneurs, business owners. And that's that's why the tax system favors business owners. That's what people don't understand. You see, when people, for example, say, how come I actually have a friend who said, like, he texted me two days ago. He was saying, like, he's like, man, this is effed up. Like, how come Donald Trump pays $750 in taxes and Joe Biden pays 100K in taxes? I said, well, it makes sense why Donald Trump pays $750 in taxes. He's a business owner. When you're a business owner, you have the you have the privilege to deduct every expense, every expense that you do, because you own a business. So the phone you buy, right? This iPhone, you can buy it and say, "Hey, it's for the business. It's for." So basically, you deduct that. You can buy a computer, even a house, and say it's for the business. So, and in this case, what happens is that your your tax liability is reduced. Basically, you avoid paying taxes. I know when we say avoid paying taxes, it sounds bad, but that's what it is. It's simply reducing your tax liability. And that's why you see many corporations, people like Mark Zuckerberg, like that's why those guys don't pay taxes. Because they because for a long time they forego the ability to generate revenue. 
even like, let's say let's say for example a dentist right a dentist the guy went to um uh, he did his college he, he did college he went to dental school he started his medical practice for the first few years he needs a secretary so what happens he, he gets his secretary he has to pay that secretary but that dentist himself doesn't have any salary all the money that his, his practice makes, he has to reinvest that into business to buy more machines, more equipment, and et cetera. It is only after that he will eventually become richer than his secretary. So, so for the first few years, his secretary is richer than him. And, that's, and, and it kills me when people don't appreciate the risk that entrepreneurs have to take to make things work. And this is one thing where I agree with the Austrian. Austrians, they are strongly for entrepreneurs, and I love that. Because entrepreneurship is what enables a market economy to function. Without entrepreneurs, there's no wealth creation at all. Yeah, absolutely. And if if people want to look into the Austrian perspective of entrepreneurs, I would highly recommend everyone go over to um, our episode with Per Byland. He he was on our Ask an Austrian series, um, and and he's really specialized in uh, entrepreneurship and and the role of entrepreneur in the economy from an Austrian perspective, but um, I'm that we've been going for about an hour and a half. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is my second time hosting Decentralized Revolution, so I, I, I should not make uh, Michael Heiss upset and, and go too long. <laughs> well, I hope most of the uh, most of the people in Mrs. Caucus will not hate me for my views uh-huh. on, you know, on, uh, on Rothbard specifically. I know people are very attached to Rothbard, but I, I think like I don't 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 I just want to 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 emphasize this. I don't hate Marine Rothbard as a man. Of course, I don't know the guy. I just didn't like what I don't like is the fact that he put libertarianism into economics, and he was he could have he could, he could be intolerant sometimes. And but that's my personal view. I know some people will be mad, but. <laughs> I, well, the the role of the decentralized revolution podcast is to kind of be outward facing with with the Mises caucus and and uh, interview people who are Austrian and and libertarian adjacent. Uh, we, oh, we've had it. a lot of people on who are uh, more conservative minded, and I think that that's kind of the role of the caucus because we're oh, all perfect. for coalition building. So oh, uh, that's the idea. Is we 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 uh, uh, we're very interested in your work, and I, you know, I. We, we've go back quite some time, so yeah. I wanted to have you on. But uh, everyone go over to decentralizedrevolution.com slash 104. Um, I want to thank our co-producer, Simon Kalpin, and also thank uh, Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack at takehumanaction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and, and we'll see you next time.